HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Restaurant Workers Community Foundation, an advocacy and action nonprofit created by and for restaurant workers. Learn more at restaurantworkerscf.org. Welcome to Processing, a podcast about the intersection between food and grief with your hosts, Zara Tangora and Bobby Comforto. So processing, according to Webster's Dictionary, is defined as a series of changes that happens naturally, a series of steps or actions taken that interact in order to achieve a particular end. So on this show, we're going to really explore where grief and food intersect, um, how they go hand in hand, different people's experiences with uh, their specific traumas and how food played a part from the beginning to the end of that experience. And how as individuals, we uniquely process life's traumas and losses through either the longing for, the creating of, the avoiding of, the obsessing over, and the eating of food. So I think we really wanted to start this show. So Bobby, uh, my beautiful mother, who's sitting here to my right, um, mom, what do you do for a living? I am a psychotherapist who specializes in bereavement, grief, trauma, and loss, and I have a private practice. Okay, and I'm a chef and former restaurant owner and current podcaster. I have one other show called Life's Banquet here on Heritage Radio. Um, I'm a restaurant consultant, and uh, I've also experienced a lot of loss, as, as has Bobby. And I think we really wanted to find a way where we could like work together. Um, there's something that feels very compelling about doing a project with you, Mom, um, as just kind of a missing piece in life and just something we've always wanted to do but not known quite how. Can't think of anything better myself. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. And so also... Uh, you know, my dad died about a year and a half ago, and uh, I lost the business about two years before that. And I really have wanted to focus in the past couple of years about being more real and not in the kind of like, hey, guys, we're being really real, but like really getting real. And one thing that I think that we don't talk about that we all really experience is death and grief. And we really, as in our culture in America, I think really run from it. Would you a agree? Death, we're a death denying culture for sure. Yeah. Um, and I think that to actually kind of connect with each other in a real way, you know, we're also connected via the darn internet, but I, I feel like in that we kind of become less connected in an actual real, uh, real way. We live in a very aspirational culture and, 
um, I personally feel extremely interested. I think we both, we share this and just kind of allowing people to understand that like the realities of their lives and real experiences are, uh, not super unique, I, although they can be, but you know what I mean? Well, we all have con- a commonality. We're connected. We are all connected yes. by two things, which are definites, food and death. <laughs> Those are definites. We will all eat, even if our experiences with food are negative. And you're saying death, but it's really all the losses, the different right. kinds of losses. Exactly. That Absolutely. Yes. De- a death of a relationship, a, a missing someone, a lost person. A um, business. A business, whatever... Form loss takes, which you're correct. It's it's many. It's not just one. It's not just death. I'll be honest with you. I spend um, fifty hours a week. I see about fifty clients a week, and each day I sit with a person's story, and I hear I hear their losses. I hear the intimacies of how they're affected by that, and I realize how it does connect us as human beings, and it normalizes in us, and it makes us feel less alone. And it supports, I'm not only supporting them, but in a way, people telling their stories supports me as well. Right. And do you feel like um, within, you know, you've been doing this for 30 years. Do you find that the folks that you meet with, do you gauge that you think they feel alienated in their experience? Do you think they feel alone in their experience? Or Absolutely. And mostly because what you said before is we're really not taught. It's not as if there's classes in school and we're taught how to deal with life's changes and losses and difficulties. We don't learn that. We have to learn it on our own the hard way. And we have automatic responses, which are often sometimes dysfunctional. And part of that is isolating and disconnecting. And um, we also have a lot of shame about the things that happened to us. Right. So you're listening in and you're saying, Heritage Radio, that's a food network. What are these two dodo birds doing talking about death and grief? I don't understand. Well, I think that in this desire to kind of get real in this way and start this conversation about grief and loss, um, that we are also both, you know, Bobby's a former chef. I am a current chef. We both cook together. We love food. And I think that finding ways in which people can connect and the commonality of the other definite in life, aside from grief and aside from death, um, is eating and food and whatever shape that takes. Again, it could be it could be a negative memory. It could be anything. But we will all have a connection with food, whether or not you grew up with people who know how to cook and care for you or who neglected you with food or food is a huge part of your life or it's a part of a memory of a lost loved one. Like it is a tie that binds. And I also think it's a kind of disarming way in starting this conversation um, because this is a hard conversation to have. It's hard for the people who are going to come on the show and share. It can be hard to listen to. And I think that finding a way that is very approachable and very common and very, uh, at the forefront of everybody's day, three times a day, hopefully, is um, is a good way to kind of start that combo. I'll tell you, one of the first ways that I learned about this, other than my own history, is that after um, I was a chef for 15 years, and um, I had a business failure, I had a bankruptcy, and I went back to school, didn't knowing what I was going to do, and I ended up, you know, I was in a hospital oncology floor studying to be a social worker, a medical social worker. And one of the first patients I had was a woman who, um, she had cancer, and she, she had this look on her face. And it was my very first client. I was terrified. And she said, I just came from nu- nuclear medicine, and I'm scared. I don't know what that means. And I was shaking inside. I didn't know what to say to her. I don't know how to make her feel better. And something came to my mind, and I said, what do you remember about when you were young? And she said, I remember my grandmother making cookies. 
And for the next 45 minutes, she told me the story of how her grandmother had this big, beautiful ceramic bowl and how she'd take it down and all the ingredients lined up and what this woman's experience was 50 years earlier about remembering her grandmother make those cookies. And it helped her get through a really scary time. And I realized that our food memories can often be so rich and so deep inside of us and they can bring us so much comfort and they can be a resource. And that was my first awareness. I'm crying. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm we need a do box a, of tissues oh here. Oh my gosh, th- we have to get sponsored by Cl- Kleenex. Please call <laughs> us. No, that's really, it's really yeah. touching and dear. And yeah, I, yeah, I think that, that it, it is such comfort and it is such relatability. And it's, uh, you told me that story and it was one of the things that kind of triggered us to both, I think, want to start the, doing this together. So mom, can you tell me and our lovely new listeners about a little bit about yourself? Like, how did you get into food? How did, why are you, how did you get to this spot right now in the Heritage Radio Network recording studio? Well, I can't help but go back to a very defining aspect of my life, which was my own mother. And my mother was a Holocaust survivor. She grew up in Yugoslavia and um, she had had a lot of loss herself. Her own mother had died when she was eight. In the Holocaust, right? No, her mother had died from surgery. Oh, actually, right. yeah. yes. Sorry. And um, when the Holocaust came, my mother was um, married. She was married at 15 to somebody that had a big bakery, and they had a bakery in Vienna. So she had moved to Vienna, but the rest of her family, which meant her father, her sister who had raised her, her other sister, um, you know, her, her brother, they all died in concentration camp, and she was able to escape and come to America. So... My mom is a Holocaust survivor, and of course, you know Grandma very well. She's um, so deeply in both our hearts. Unfortunately, not with us anymore. Yes, but she was a celebrator. She was somebody that could appreciate everything, a raindrop, a flower, a leaf on a tree, a strawberry. As a matter of fact, I have these pictures of her eating strawberries, which are my favorite, because she ate everything with such gusto. And she was one of those people that had so much grief in her life and yet could didn't talk about it, did not talk about the grief, didn't choose to, but chose to celebrate life. And I think that was just a very deep inspiration for me. And I remember apple strudel as a little girl, the first thing I ever learned to make, and chicken paprikash Ooh. and stuffed cabbage. Yum. Oh, yes. stuffed cabbage yeah. is our favorite. It is. Yeah, and it's healing and has medicinal properties. Absolutely. So I feel that she really was the, the first person that taught me about the rich qualities of food and the healing qualities of food. And when I married your dad, which I was very, very young, I was 19 years old. Oh, my God. uh, Very young. That's crazy. (laughs) Neither one of us had careers, and we somehow were both very, very creative and started to cook and started to cook for other people. And we started a business called Love and Oven Edible Productions, and it was a truly creative venture. We had a very big catering business. We had a takeout storefront. We had several locations. Um, and for 12 years, until the time that you were born, about the year that you were born, we cooked our butts off. And um, it was in the 70s, so at that time, people didn't even know what quiche was. So we were inventing and creating. I always and, say that when people ask about you, I'm like, they brought quiche to <laughs> Long Island. To Long Island. So, and I realized that food was a very right brain experience. You know, for me, it was very artistic and creative and a way to express myself. Can I cut you off for a second? I want to ask you a question, actually. Somebody said the other day, I was listening to a podcast, and they were talking about how when you're in a creative mindset, you take your brain offline. Do you feel like that's what happened to you, what you started to notice happening to you when you started cooking? Did your brain go offline? 
Yes, well, it's very interesting. I always tell people when I'm helping them, I say, you know, what form of meditation do you have? And I explain to them that meditation is losing your mind. Right. And I tell them that cooking is my meditation. Yeah. And it's true. You know, when I cook, I am not thinking about anything. I'm not worrying about anything. I'm coming from this visceral, authentic, you know, deep, genuine part of myself where I don't judge myself. I just, you know, I'm in a creative process. So that's what cooking is for me, and that's why cooking is so healing. Yeah. Amazing. So you had the Lovin' Oven, and then you opened Zaza's Hot Hors d'Oeuvres, right? Yes. In, an, in a food mall that was going to open in the 80s in Boca Raton, Florida, where exactly, Grandma and Grandpa lived, exactly. right? Exactly. It was meant to be a franchise. And unfortunately, within a year and a half, I lost $250,000. Everything that we had borrowed from family, from everybody. Um, it wasn't the fault awful. of the business. It's a very rough place to have a business, Florida. And yeah. we were selling to hotels and, and cruise lines who didn't pay us for... A year, so we oh weren't able God. to survive. But I always tell this funny story that on the way back, we sold everything we had just to be able to come back to New York, and we were both going to go back to school. And we had one trunk on the top of the car, and we had you in the back seat, and uh, we were headed back to New York, and we stopped at a motel, and somebody stole the trunk. Oh, my God. So, therefore, we came back to New York with absolutely nothing. It's like kicked, like truly kicked while you're down. And how do you... I mean, I guess that's the part of like what I find interesting about wanting to start the show because I have felt like that many times, truly kicked when I'm down and like just conjuring the strength to keep going on. And I think a lot of that has to do with nourishment. So how did, I mean, how did you guys go on? Well, it's kind of like the Phoenix rising, you know, and that's what it feels like because you really have to go into the ashes. And sometimes what generates you to go on isn't necessarily about self-care, it's by this kind of implosion that's happening inside of you. It's the fire that burns inside of you. And it can either turn inward and hurt you or it can come out and create energy where you can become something new. And I did become something new. I went back to school, as I mentioned before. I I went back to become a social worker. And my first teacher was on the staff of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who's the very famous um, grief expert. Um, And that's when I began to make the connection between food and feelings and loss because I, would, I worked in hospice for 12 years and I would go into a family's home and realize that everything was so, so hard for them. They were at the worst of times and we'd end up in the kitchen talking about food or what they were preparing or what their favorite foods were or even the person who was dying. Yeah, it's a you common know. bond. It is. Right? It's, it's, a common com- it's a common bond with all languages. I, I mean, it's, it, it is global. And you don't have to speak the same language to communicate about food. I Every time I am in a taxi cab with anyone of any nationality, American, Indian, uh, Pakistani, South American, anyone, I always end up, if, if a conversation begins, it always turns to food because I'm just like interested in what different people's cultures are. And this is actually one time when you're in a space with a stranger where you like making conversation is key. I'm yes. curious, what was it like for you in that time when you came back from Florida after bankruptcy, you guys were living in grandma and grandpa's house, dad was in the basement, your marriage was falling apart. I don't have a lot of food memories of this time. In fact, I don't have a lot of rich food memories from much of my upbringing, despite the fact that I'm a chef and like there are certain things, but I don't have the like, we were all sitting around the table kind of things. I have more singular memories. A lot of them had to do with grandpa, but I'll get to that in my portion of the show. But I want to understand a little bit about what your relationship with food was during this time you were sick, right? You had colitis. And then, so what was it like for you? What were you eating? What were you doing after that? Because your life had been in food. 
right? Well, it's true that in the whole crisis of my life, at this big turning point of my life, I also, you know, was sick. And so food had a very different quality. I couldn't eat everything I wanted to. Some foods would be um, actually, you know, poisonous to my body in a way. So that, but I always had a creative interest in food. In restaurants, I was always able to go into a new town and immediately spot where the best place was. I could tell. Um, I always read cooking magazines, and of course, Sarah, we always had Thanksgiving. That oh, was Thanksgiving always was amazing. A constant. Yes, Grandma's favorite chestnut stuffing. This episode is presented by Restaurant Workers Community Foundation, an advocacy and action nonprofit created by and for restaurant workers. RWCF addresses quality of life issues that disproportionately affect restaurant workers, such as wage fairness gender equity, racial justice, immigrant rights, mental health, and substance abuse. Learn more about advocacy, grant-making, and impact investing by RWCF at restaurantworkerscf.org. So in between, when you came back from Florida, let's call that like 1989, right? 1989, right? 1988. Uh, between then, how long did that take you? What, what year do you feel like you came back into yourself? I mean, my memory is over a decade later where you really started embracing and loving being able to cook again. First of all, you had a small child who was picky eater by choice. Um, and you were by yourself. You were kind of sick. Like, when do you feel like you were able to like re fall in love with food and cooking? Well, I think you said it before Zara, that it's not necessarily, you know, gourmet food or the best quality food. It's the kinds of foods that touch our heart. So we used to go to J&J's, the, oh my God. the local Italian restaurant. Can you and describe J&J's for our listeners? J&J's was in the middle of the station part of town. You know, wasn't in the best part of town. It was an old Italian restaurant that had been there for 60 years or more. All the waiters and waitresses were a constant. You could see the they would waitresses smoke cigarettes smoking at the cigarettes <laughs> at the bar. And it was a bar, you know. And yeah. the, but it was the place where Italian-American food was and it was comfortable. It was a comfort. That's really the point, yeah. you know. So I think more during that period of time, it was my interest in creativity about food that was sustaining and continued to sustain me, and also comfort food. But I wasn't cooking that much yeah. at that time. I remember one thing that you've made ever since I can remember, and till this day, that you make the absolute best. And by the way, Bobby is probably the best cook that I know. Everything she makes is always delicious. And uh, somebody said to me the other day, they're like, your food, to me, they're like, your food just tastes like your food. You know, like everything I make tastes like Zara food. Um, and then I feel similarly about you. Like I could eat your food out of a lineup and I know it. And it's not that all your food tastes the same, but it tastes like something you make. So Bobby always makes panacopita, which is little Greek uh, spinach pies with feta cheese and spinach and, and herbs and buttery phyllo dough. And that is the thing that no matter how down I've ever seen you, no matter how bleak things ever were, you've always been rolling panacopita. Well, that's because I've probably made hundreds and hundreds of thousands because when we had Zara, Zaza had hors d'oeuvres, it was an hors d'oeuvre company specializing in strudels. Yeah. And we had, um, and you're right, you know, to this day, every holiday I make spanakopita for my husband's family and they all run to the door when I come. Yeah. Because the spanakopita are here, the spanakopita are here. Yeah. And it's true, there's certain things that we make are, that we, you can make them sleeping, you can make them in, with blindfolded, it, you just feel it in your bones. And But Zara, that brings up the fact that your first word with Spanakopita. Oh my gosh, and I would guys, like I'm to, brilliant. I'm a brilliant genius. I would like to tell all of you that when Zara was a baby, 
her first um, carrier was a silver mixing bowl. And because I was cooking at Love and Oven at the time, I would have to move her around in the mixing bowl wherever Aww. I was and carry her around. Oh, that's so cute. So that's how you started. So tell me, from your perspective, how you started to first love food. Well, I remember that the first thing that I ever made was at Grandma and Grandpa's house, and it was a raw hot dog dipped in barbecue sauce. And then I would eat it in the refrigerator, so sneaking it so no one would know. And then the second thing I remember making was a grapefruit roll-up that I smeared peanut butter on and baked in the oven. And you really were so sweet. I, I remember this is like an early, this may be my earliest memory, um, that you ate some of it to be nice. And that was really kind of you. I was also trying to encourage your inspiration because yeah. I think cooking with kids is really important. You were also on a peanut butter and grapefruit <laughs> roll-up diet. So at the time, it was all you could eat, stomach. Um I remember living in grandma and grandpa's house and my grandfather, dad, my dad's dad, um, was a very cheap person and in, but a frugal, frugal, in, frugal in a depression era way though. Like, I mean, he was frugal cause that's just how people were. So well, his family made squirrels, turtle soup and squirrel <laughs> stew. Yeah, exactly. And so grandpa John, um, would go clamming. He'd go digging for mussels. He'd pick dandelion greens out of the, that grew out of the driveway and purslane salad. And he had a big garden in the back and grew beautiful tomatoes, tomatoes. He was one of those Long Island guy that would say everything like pizza, tomatoes. So he would grow tomatoes and peppers and cucumbers in the backyard. And I remember that he would sit by the stove all the time. He had a gigantic belly. One of those men like who are overweight, but really it's all in the belly. And I've always wondered what the hell is in there? It's like you could pop it and like water would, or beer would just like drizzle out. He also out. had a very small kitchen, so the belly would bump into every yes, single counter. Exactly. So he'd sit on a high chair no matter where he was at anyone's house. There's pictures of him at aunts and uncles' houses doing the same thing. And he'd sit by the stove and he'd stir a big pot of sauce and sit there and eat out of the pot all day. And I just remember that that is what someone looks like when they really love food. He was someone who, so to this day, my favorite way ever to cook is if I'm somewhere with very little resources, so over an open fire, in someone's house, like going to Jenny's house in Long Beach, somewhere where like, you know, you really have to kind of just Being resourceful. Being resourceful, throwing it together, because that's what grandpa did, and I think that's when you know that you can be a really good cook, when you've got a tomato, some olive oil, some salt, a fire, some flour and eggs. What are you going to do with this shit? Well, we both cook the same way. We don't follow recipes. I right. can't follow a recipe. Right. It's, I, if, if it says a half a cup, I'll put in a quarter. I right. don't want to follow the rules. So being um, resourceful means that you create things in the moment with what you have. Totally. Um, I remember that I think one of the biggest things about my cooking style is is high acid. And that's something that I got from you because we always used to trip on acid together when I was a kid. <laughs> no, we're the lemon, actually we're the lemon we're head the lemon family. We're the lemon head family. And, you know, you eat with gusto. You're a thin person. You always have been very fit, but you eat with the gusto of a, a Labrador retriever. <laughs> <laughs> Well, everybody makes fun of me when I eat lobsters and I suck out the guts. Yeah, but you have guts. That's the thing. And so something I really learned from you about eating is to eat with gusto and with guts and eat the guts and really go for it and, you know, eat with my hands and lick my fingers, lots of lemon and lots of salt and everything. Um, and we had a really great period of time, a long period of time, which was not great, but... Uh, during my upbringing when we really didn't get along and we didn't really eat together and we didn't cook at home and that wasn't part of the scenario and that except for Thanksgiving except for that I was just gonna say that except for Thanksgiving always and uh I still always really loved your cooking when I'd sneak bites of it out of the fridge and try to never let you know because I didn't want to let you know I was eating anything you made but you're a great cook um 
dad with my dad who's passed uh was a great cook as well and a really great baker and i was in a horrible accident when i was 21 years old i was flung off of a cliff in a bus uh, off a 40-foot cliff in the middle of the desert i got some money from that i kind of stewed around with what to do with it for years and ultimately decided to open my own restaurant in brooklyn in the year 2010 with no it wasn't experience. it wasn't your first restaurant your first restaurant was when you were 10 years old and you set up a pop-up restaurant oh yeah in the house in west hampton and you would do that quite often yeah a grandma well, I, I grew up on long island but our grandma my grandma your mom had a rent an apartment every summer in west hampton and i did and i call it i called it Zara's place, which I think is also, ironically, what uh, my friend from Shea Matan has promised me he's going to call his new restaurant in uh, the White Hotel. So Zara's place too. But so yeah, Zara's place was my first restaurant. But my second restaurant was Brucey, and I opened it um, in 2010 at age 26 by myself with no experience, and I sunk hundreds of thousands of dollars into it, which I had gotten through uh, my settlement, and it really felt very much like my my life was literally on the line with that because I was like, I almost died for this. And I worked myself ragged to the core to make it work. And it did work. It was so popular and it was amazing um, place. People felt passionately about that. I'm not trying to be self-congratulatory, but people felt that a way about Brucey that I don't know they feel about most restaurants. It had heart and soul and, and, I, and oozing of creativity. And I got that from you and dad. And, um, and I ultimately had to let it go because it was killing me at the same time. Uh, it's an exhausting feat to do. I wanted to have a different set of problems. I closed it. I have been lucky to have a prosperous career in some ways after and also feel very lost and, and in a lot of pain because I'm like, are the best days behind me? Do I, am I just not loving what loved me back, which was Brucey. And so for me, it's been a real journey to figure out how to deal with that pain and loss. And it's something that like has promoted me to want to, kind of keep unpacking lost feelings of lostness as a person, actual loss. Mm -hmm. uh, again, to reinforce the fact my dad died, it's terrible. It's a terrible pain. He'd been sick for a long time, but it hit me way harder than I had ever thought it could. I went through, uh, my dad died, and then a week later, my boyfriend of two years broke up with me and kicked me out of the house, and I had to move in with you as a 33-year-old person for a couple months, and I was at the bottom of my rope where I thought my life was over, and I would never be happy again. I didn't eat. I lost a lot of weight. I wanted... But during that time, you found not eating was a way of oh, yeah, I, coping. My go-to with sadness is to punish myself and to, like, you know, to not eat, and that's my coping. And so uh, that's my story. <laughs> You know, it's interesting. I was thinking about what you said. I tend to, when I'm going through a difficult time, at some point I want to lift myself up. And so I generally use food not as a coping mechanism. I don't eat a lot of food when I'm upset right. or overeat or even yeah. think about eating that much when I'm upset. But my way of lifting myself up, my way to connect to my heart again, because when I'm upset, sometimes my heart shuts down. Right. So my way to reconnect to myself is through food. Right, interesting. Whether it's shopping for, you know, farmer's markets, looking at food yeah. or the preparation of it. So I think yeah. that's, you know, one way that I, how about yourself now? Do you find that? No, I still punish. I, I still punish with, um, not eating. Um, and not, eat, I'm not in trying to self-flagellate, you know what I mean? Or flagellate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I'm, it's just something that it's just my, my sadness lives in my stomach. It lives right in mm -hmm. the pit of my stomach and there's no room for anything else. Yeah. 
Um, and I'm excited to explore kind of why that is and help other people unpack that too. So, And, you know, I, I mentioned before that I see about 50 people a week. I have a lot of clients. I have a very busy practice, and almost 90% of them, well, really 100% of them have dealt with losses and tragedies and traumas. And I always kind of find a way of exploring their relationship to food and, you know, whether it's a way that they memorial, memorialize people through food and remember right. people through food or or pick up pieces of their lost childhood yeah. through food or whether they help nurture people through food. Like I have a lot of people that have sick family members and such a big part of that is preparing food for them. And I know you did that with your dad. Oh, what I did. Was, what was that like? I for went you? down and cooked for dad. So my dad had multiple myeloma, and he was also, you know, really not very mobile. Um, and he loved food. And I would go down there. Something I learned from you, what you did for grandma when she became older, and you know, not able to help herself. Um, I would go down and fill my dad's up, free, my dad's freezer up, and I'd have a marathon cook fest. And at first, you know, I've written something about this, but at, at first, my uh, goal was to get him to lose weight and be healthy and live longer. And I was like, I'll make him kale smoothies and I'll make him grain bowls. And then I was like, Oh, he's on Coumadin, so if he has kale, his blood will be so thin that he'll just nick himself and die. So get rid of the kale. But um, then I realized he doesn't want to fucking eat kale. He wants to eat macaroni and cheese and meatballs and meatloaf and pierogies and that's what I'm going to make him because he's going to die and I have no control over it so I'm just going to make him happy and like you know banana bread like with chocolate chips and cookies and ice homemade ice cream sandwiches and that's what I would do and yeah he died and it wasn't because I cooked for him like that he was eating garbage anyway but um nurturing with food is definitely something I think both of us are very are very familiar with um so mom what do you feel like is the goal what is your goal in in making this show? I really think it has to do about, about people's stories and about bringing stories that are inside of people in their hearts and their heads and helping bring them out so that we can connect more as human beings. And I feel one of the places that's important to connect is around our losses because people just don't talk about it. And I feel that, that I know this professionally that the more we talk about it, the more normalized it makes us feel, the more connected we feel, um, there's a very famous um, writer and psychiatrist. His name is Viktor Frankl, and he was also a Holocaust survivor. And when he was in concentration camp, he wrote a manuscript in his head, and it was called A Man's Search for Meaning, and it was about resilience and why certain people survive the worst of things that happen and why other people don't. And one of his premises was that survival is a community event, and I truly believe that. I've I've worked in a World Trade Center program for four years with you know, a whole community of people, 100 people coming together trying to heal that wound. And I realized that connection helps us heal. So to be connected to my dear daughter, to be connected to other people in our, in our community um, and their stories of loss and pain and how they survive and how they cope, all the different ways we cope, I think that's the most interesting thing we can do and the best way we can give to each other. Yeah. How about you? Um, I don't want people to feel so alone with their pain. You know, I don't want people to feel so alone with their pain because pain is a very lonely place to be and you can go really dark and really deep and to a point of no return sometimes if you feel like you're all alone. Connection. And I think that, uh, I think finding a way to relate pain to something else that's very relatable is very important. And I want to have people share those stories too. And we love food. If you guys and out there food. could see us together. Oh, we're in covered f- in pepperoni <laughs> as we speak. In a farmer's market or cooking. And it's amazing how we, you know, we have one, a, a 
classic kind of mother-daughter relationship. It's not always easy. But when we're in the kitchen, there's such respect for each other. And we're so much in our hearts. And yeah, and sometimes I'm like, why are you putting so that in the fun. microwave? Or you're like, why are, I want to cut this in a strip and I want to, I want it julienne, I want it mint. <laughs> so it's not always as pretty. But that's part of the thing. Like, it's not pretty, you know? And it, it there's an element of like, oh, the, you know, Instagram uh, hand holding a drippy ice cream cone, not pretty. Like, the reality is, is that it actually, life, food, cooking relationships, grief is actually really not pretty. Well beyond a drippy ice cream cone. It's like very intense and very painful and it's also luscious and gorgeous and beautiful and it coexists and that brings me to a story that you had you told me this wonderful anecdote before I don't know if it's an anecdote but a small story the Buddhist story yeah well before I say that I also want to say that the name of my business my um, therapy business is bittersweet and I think that's what you just said before that our life experiences are bittersweet yeah so that's really what we're here to explore it is the bitterness that you say and the messy and the painful part but there's something in our hearts that is so sweet and tender and trying to connect with that yeah. is very healing. Yeah. So the story I love to tell is a, a Buddhist story about a woman who's running from a tiger. And she's running and she's so scared this tiger is going to get her and she sees a cliff and she realizes that if she could find a vine and she could put herself down into the cliff, down the cliff, she'd be safe from the tiger. So she runs to the edge and she finds the vine and she holds onto it and she quickly gets herself down into the middle and all of a sudden she looks down and there's a tiger beneath her. So now she has a tiger above her, a tiger beneath her, and she looks up and she doesn't know what to do. She's terrified. Either way, she's going to lose. And she looks over and she sees it's a strawberry vine that she's been holding onto. And there is this big, unbelievable, luscious strawberry sitting right there on the vine. So what do you think she does with the tiger above her and the tiger below her? She eats the strawberry so slowly and so lusciously and appreciates every single moment of it. I love it. That embodies what we're talking about, right? Yes, it does. Yeah. I love you, Mom. I'm really excited to start the show with you. Um, You guys can follow us on Instagram at processingpodcast. That's P-R-O-C-E-S-S-I-N-G. P-O-D-C-A-S-T on Instagram. Um, and email us at processing at heritageradio.org. And we will have uh, new guests each week. Um, there'll be people who are going to share their intimate stories of loss and pain and and survival and resi- resiliency. Yeah. And we also hope that you'll write in letters to us because we would love to also be able to read some of your letters online. Absolutely. On air. Um, we'll first read them online, then we'll read them on the air. <laughs> Mom, I love you, and this was really fun, and I'm so excited to do this project with you, and we are so excited to hear from you. Please tune in, and uh, yeah, support Heritage Radio Network. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. 
Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.